2 Samuel 23, verse 20 through 23, I, I ran across this article entitled, Mountain Lion Attacks Six-Year-Old in Cupertino, California. In 2016, a six-year-old boy survived a mountain lion attack on Sunday morning. The family was on a hiking trail in Cupertino, California, when the lion grabbed the child. He was basically somewhat dragged through part of the brush, a witness said. Fish and Wildlife Warden Travis Jarrett said multiple family members then came to his aid, fought off the attacking mountain lion, then the boy was basically transferred to a local medical facility. The under unidentified boy suffered non-life-threatening injuries to his back and neck, the, sta the, uh, the station reported. However, Sean Sardez told NBC Bay Area he was hiking on the same trail. This is what he said. The man came down to the trail carrying his son. He looked like he had lacerations on his back and his neck. He was bleeding pretty heavily. Originally, I thought he had fallen off some rocks, but afterwards we heard a mountain lion had attacked him. We know, they're, we know what they're up to, and we know why they're up there. If you live in these hills, you kind of expect it, said Santa Clara County Sheriff Department spokesman Sergeant Curtis, who told the press. It's hard to imagine living in an area where you can expect to meet mountain lions. And none of us in Wichita or the surrounding area live where we can encounter these ferocious beasts. But I would imagine that on your journey to, to church this morning, you did not have on your schedule or your agenda encounter a man-eating lion on the way. I know some of us like to plan our work and work our plan, but that was not a part of your plan. Why? Because most of us do not schedule these kinds of catastrophic encounters. We just don't look forward to them. We don't look to them. We don't place them on our calendar. We don't place them on our agenda. We, we don't put them in our, in our uh, little, little uh, cell phone so they can we have reminders. Encounter man-eating lion at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning on the way to the church. You just don't do that. Now, what Benaiah was doing on that day, we have no idea, but I guarantee you on that day, he did not have on his agenda nor on his schedule, he didn't work into his plan, meet a lion in a cave on that day, fight lion and kill him. That was probably more than likely not on his agenda of that day, yet he encountered this man-eating beast. If you think about lions for just a second, they're ferocious beasts. I have a couple of statistics. A lion can leap 36 feet in the air horizontally and 12 feet vertically. They travel at 35 miles an hour. They weigh between 400 to 500 pounds on an average. They have paws like cats that are sharp as cats' paws. The only problem is they're a little bit larger. Some have been measured up to two inches in diameter and two inches long. They are incredibly razor sharp. And when Benaiah entered into that cave on that day to encounter this man-eating lion, who many believe was threatening the local villagers there and sort of looking at those that traveling to and from the city as sort of happy meals, so to speak, it was time to confront the lion and kill the lion. And so we see where Benaiah then chases the lion into a pit and on a snowy day kills the lion. 
Now, we have identified last week that a lion is sort of a metaphor. It's, it's something that we and I so need to imagine, need to understand, need some clarity on, that a lion is not something we're going to encounter unless we go to the zoo, and, and they're behind, you know, a pretty good distance and, and a, 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 some, some safety precautions, so we can see them at a distance. But a lion is not a, a real, actual lion. A lion in your life and my life are one of those circumstances, they're a situation in which we encounter that situation or that circumstance, and that situation and that circumstance is a barrier between us and where God wants to take us. You see, God was acting in Benaiah's life and he was taking him from where he was to where God wanted him to be. And as a result of that, the, the path to accomplishing what God wanted to do in Benaiah's life was in the pit on that snowy day to confront that lion and to kill him. Had he not done that, he would have stalled, so to speak, and not be able to advance into the plan and the purpose that God had for his life. And like Benaiah, you and I have a plan. We have a purpose. We have a direction that God wants to take us in. And there are obstacles. There are barriers. There's an enemy. There are circumstances. There are situations. There are things right now in your life that you're well aware of the reality that they are there. And unless you charge those, chase those down, and overcome them, you will not become the person that God created you to become. You will not fulfill the plan and the purpose that God has for your life. It's important, it's imperative, it's critical that you identify what that line is in your life. It could be as simple as, as, as a circumstance, as a situation. It could be a sin. It could be a shortcoming. It could be a failure. It's a stronghold that the enemy has on your life. Then unless you charge it and defeat it and overcome it, You'll never become the person that God created you to be. You will be less than the intention that God has for you. And there are many people, I believe, who are defeated by such things. And so God is calling us to be lion chasers today, to engage those things so that as we engage them, we can tear them down, we can overcome those strongholds and become the person that God wants us to be. So I want us to take a look at 10 principles, not today, only five today. Breathe a sigh of relief. Not all 10 today. We're going to have five today and then five next Sunday. These are 10 principles of lion chasers. These are qualities, characteristics. These are practices. These are skills. Whatever you want to call them. I have I've determined that these are the things that I find in Benaiah's life that we, like Benaiah, if we will implement these things, we can then not only chase those lions down, but we can conquer them and fulfill that which God intends to fulfill through us. So lion chaser, number one, accept God's activity. They accept God's activity. What do you mean by that? Look at the verse in 2 Samuel 20, 20. In Benaiah... The son of Jehoiada was a valiant man of Kabizil, a doer of great deeds. He was the son of Jehoiada. Did you know, and we talked about it a little bit last week, I know you've slept since last week, but Benaiah was the son of someone who is descendant of Levi. Everyone knows, if you've studied Israel history, that all of the descendants of Levi were priests. They were born into the family of priests. And because it... Benaiah was born to Jehoiada. Jehoiada was a priest. He too, from the tribe of Levi, then was raised from the moment of his, of his birth in the ways of the priesthood, meaning that he was taught how to worship Jehovah. He was taught the word of the Lord. He was taught the ways of the Lord. He was taught how to be obedient to the Lord. And so 
this, this incredible warrior first was a priest and he learned the ways and the word of God and he followed the ways and the word of God. He was a very deeply spiritual man. I'm convinced that you cannot overcome those lions in your life without a deep, spiritual, intimate walk with God. It's just not going to happen. But even though we see Benaiah was born a priest, God caused him to become a warrior. He became a valiant warrior. And we know this because even earlier in the book of Samuel, we learn that he was already a commander in the army, army of, of David. We now learn in this text that he set, was set aside to be the bodyguard. Later we see Benaiah defending David and his choice of Solomon, his son, to be, to be the next king and doesn't encounter that treason. He fights against that and to later become now Solomon's chief commander of the army. So God has this, this long, drawn-out purpose and plan that he has for Benaiah, and, and God is working in his life, in every circumstance, in every situation, to move him to where God wants him to be. And he is, he is responsive to God. He is yielding to God. He is obedient to the Lord. He takes the opportunities that God gives him. He walks through those opportunities, no matter how dangerous they may be or how difficult they may be. Because he knows that God is moving him step by step into the process of fulfilling a purpose for which he was created. The moment he was conceived in his mother's womb, he had a purpose, a plan that God wanted to fulfill in his life. And he was very much obedient to that. I want to compare in, in this morning's study, Benaiah with David. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see that David too had such activity in his life. You see in, in, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 through 13, and he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy, and he was beautiful eyes and handsome, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What do we have here? We have a passage here where we have described for us this incredible encounter of Samuel with David. Now, if you know something about the story here in, 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 in this incident in Samuel, you know that, that, that Samuel, who was the prophet of the Lord, heard from the Lord, and the Lord said, hey, I'm, I'm displeased with Saul. I don't want him to be king anymore. And as a result of that, he then tells Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to seek out a man named Jesse, and I want you to select one of his sons to be the next king. Samuel does that. He heads to Jerusalem, and upon getting there, he finds Jesse, and they worship together. And following that worship service, he then says, do you have any sons? I'm here to anoint one of them as the king. And he lines up these seven good-looking dudes here. And one by one, Samuel goes up to them, and the Lord says, this is not the one. And I can imagine as the seven sons are standing there, who do you think that he picks first? I don't know about you, but I remember when I was a kid, and we were choosing teams when I played soccer on the streets of Brazil. You know, you, you divide, you, I was a captain and another guy was a captain, or we had two captains, and they then take a pick of those, and who are you going to pick first? The best soccer player. And I can imagine as Samuel stood there, he probably saw these seven who were standing there, and he said, that's the tallest, the strongest, the best looking, he looks pretty smart, I think he's the guy. Samuel steps up, the Lord said, no, 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 it's not him. He goes to number two, and the Lord says, not him. Number three, not him. Number four, not him. Number five, not him. Number six, not him. Number seven, not him. Why? Because God each and every time says, I don't see as you see. I don't judge as you judge. Man judges on appearance, but I judge according to a man's heart. Aren't you glad about that? 
Come on, all you ugly people out there, say, I'm glad about that. You're not as good looking as you think you are, okay? Do you hear me, Larry? I know, I, I see you looking in the mirror in there. Just kidding, brother. And, and so he turns to Jesse and said, you have another, you got another boy? He said, yeah, I got this guy out in the field. His name's David. He's my youngest. He's out in the field. He's a shepherd boy. He's tending sheep. Well, go get him. And as soon as Jesse summons him and he steps in, we see according to this text that Samuel hears the word from the Lord and said, this is him. God was preparing David as a shepherd boy to be king of Israel. How do you know that? We're going to look at it in a minute. We didn't read this passage, but while he was out in the field, he encounters a lion. He encounters a bear. Those encounters in that field was God preparing him to be the king of Israel. Much like Benaiah is being prepared through these encounters with two uh, aerials from Moab and the lion and this tall, good-looking Egyptian dude that was more than likely as tall as Goliath. These three encounters were events. They were challenges. They were things that God was using to, to work in his life to mold him and to make him into the person that, that God wanted him to be to fulfill the purpose for which God had for him. I'm here to tell you, I don't care what the circumstances are surrounding your birth. Listen to me. I don't care what the circumstances are surrounding your birth. You have a plan and a purpose that God has for you. Your life is not an accident. Man, independent apart from God, cannot start, cannot create life. Only God is the life giver. And only God is a life sustainer. And as a result of that, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he is actively working in your life to move you along. And each encounter you have with this circumstance, with this situation, with this giant, with this lion, with this aerial, with this, this tall, good-looking Egyptian, if you ever encounter one, they're all steps to where God is moving and working in your life to mold you and to make you into the person that God wants to use for greater glory and for greater things that he has in store for you. Lion chasers understand that as I embrace the activity of God, God moves me ever so closer to fulfilling his purpose for, for my life and the plan that he has and the glory he wants me to receive. Number two, we see that not only they embrace God's activity, but they, secondly, they know their assignment. Lion chasers know their assignment. It's interesting how we see in 2 Samuel chapter 23, where once again we read the same text, that he struck down two aerials of Moab, and he also went down and struck down a lion in the pit of the day, and the snow had fallen, and he struck down an Egyptian. What was his assignment on those occasions? Do you think when he came up to two aerials from Egypt, he said, hmm, I wonder what I'm supposed to do here? I mean, these guys, did you know the word aerial also means lion-like men? These men were like lions. They were fierce competitors. They were not only fierce competitors and champions, but they were, they were men who were the enemy of Israel. And when he encounters these, he doesn't say, I wonder what God wants me to do with this. Let me pray about it a little bit. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me search for God. No, he engages the enemy. There's no hesitation on his part. Why? He knows his responsibility. He knows his assignment. Many scholars believe that the lion that was hiding in that den, in that pit, was a lion that was driven there by famine because it was a, it was a wintry, snowy day. It was a time of winter in the season. 
More than likely, fresh meat was scarce. Maybe the lion was a little bit lazy and slow. Maybe he didn't have a lioness. Did you know that the lioness is the one that does all the hunting? Did you know that, ladies? Yeah, you didn't know that. Maybe that's why it's so true to life today. Anyway, so... And so we got a lion who's in a den, who's hungry in the wintertime. And he finds himself now having to defend maybe the tribe or maybe the, the village where this lion is sort of camping out looking for fresh meals. Maybe like, you know, Burger King, I'm going to have it my way today. And I'm going to prey on humans because they're easy targets. I mean, they're no match for a lion so it's an easy target it's an easy meal and so his assignment is to what is to kill the lion to defend the townspeople when he encountered this Egyptian who's handsome by the way I don't know really what that means why that's important here but he's a handsome dude just shows to show you handsome people die just like ugly people I don't know and uh, but he's handsome but he is tall he's more than likely I mean, nine feet tall, much like Goliath himself. And as a result of that, he is a, he is a guy that more than likely has been hired to, to be an enemy. He's, there was nothing going on between Israel and Egypt at the time, so many believe that he was more than likely a hired warrior to, to engage against Israel by someone who hired him. And so he was a combatant. He was an enemy. He was there not for friendship, or for collaboration, but as an enemy. And you think, he said, well, I wonder why my responsibility is to face this Egyptian, because if I don't face him, guess what? He's going to wreak havoc probably on someone else. And so he knew his responsibility was in the aerials, in the lion, and in the Egyptian. His responsibility is to do what? To be who God made him to be, a warrior priest, a spiritual warrior. Do you get, do you get where I'm coming from? We are spiritual warriors. That's our responsibility. That's our assignment. We are spiritual warriors who are engaging in a spiritual enemy, and we, in that process, are to fulfill our responsibility and engage whatever it is that comes between us and what God wants to accomplish and fulfill, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. It's our responsibility. It's our assignment. Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see this, this interesting thing that David knew what his assignment was. Jump into 1 Samuel 17. You know the story. After he was anointed king, what happens? Well, he's out of the field and his brothers are, are, are engaged in war. And there's a battle going on between Israel and the Philistines. And we, we're familiar with this story since we were children, right? The Philistines are gathered on one hill and the Israelites are gathered on another hill. The line has been drawn in the valley below and they're supposed to come down and supposed to engage in warfare. And each and every day when they line up on their hill to run down in the, into the valley to engage in battle, they stand there, you know, ready for battle, if you can imagine that, ready to charge, when all of a sudden a giant named Goliath steps out from the Philistine army, walks down to the hill and challenges Israel to produce a champion and to the victor go the spoils. We're going to battle out one-on-one and whoever wins is the victor and gets all the spoils and conquers the land. Now, this guy is nine feet, nine inches tall. He is dressed to the hill. Um, I can't, can't think of any common, you know, any football player you may Mean Joe Green, I don't know, use your imagination. 
I mean, he was the first football player that was dressed similar to a football player today, except what he had on wasn't some plastic stuff. It was made of, of iron and, and metals. Some believe that just the, 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 the coat that he wore weighed 175 pounds by itself. The spear was, you know, 20 pounds or something. It was tall. It was big. He had a, he had a guy who carried his shield for him. It was so tall. And here he steps out, this giant of a, of a Goliath guy, and he mocks God, and he mocks God's people, and he challenges them to a fight. And the Bible says that not only Saul, but all of his army were greatly afraid. They were afraid. And so David, you know, is sent by his dad to take food to to his brothers out in the field, and he shows up about the time they're all lining up, and he hears Goliath come down, and he says, what the, what's wrong with you people? Why don't you do something about it? And so word gets back to Saul. That's a little ruddy, red-headed, nothing but a little dude out in the camp talking about how you're a wimp, Saul, and how your men are wimps. These are valiant warriors, and he summons David, and David comes, and he encounters Saul and notice his words as he says in the text when the words that David spoke were heard they were repeated them to Saul and he sent for him and David said to Saul let no man's heart fall because of him notice how he knows his assignment your servant will go and fight with the Philistines do you think David was well aware of his of his assignment do you think you think he knew what his responsibility was I mean, he wasn't one of the warriors. He wasn't one of the soldiers. He wasn't there doing battle. And yet he came to deliver food. And all of a sudden he says, I know now what my assignment is. I know what my responsibility is. It is my responsibility. It is my assignment from God to go encounter this, this Goliath, this Philistine, and to defeat him so that the people of God can no longer be afraid. You have an assignment. You have a responsibility. Philippians 3.14, Paul knew that. He said, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. Paul says, there's no obstacles, there's no barriers. I know what my responsibility is. My responsibility is to charge forward that no matter what is in my way, no matter how much the lion may roar or the enemy named Goliath may may mock me and mock my God, I am going to face it, I am going to challenge it, I am going to defeat it so that I can continue in the path that God has called for me to accomplish and achieve. Notice 1 Timothy 6.12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Paul acknowledges that it's about a fight. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, he has said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's a fight. We're in a, we're in a fight. I don't know about you, but some of you don't like to fight. And you do everything you could to avoid a fight. But this is one fight that you cannot avoid. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have been suited with his spiritual armor according to Ephesians 6, and you are to fight. It is a fight. It is a battle. We do have an enemy, and there are obstacles to that, and lion chasers understand their assignment and their responsibility, and that is to run to the roar and challenge the roar and overcome the obstacle. Number three, Not only should we embrace God's activity and know our assignment, we should also harness fear. Lion chasers harness their fear. 
Any hero will tell you that they're really not heroes. I don't know too many people who say, I'm a hero. I mean, you see them interviewed and they do horrific, you know, uh, uh, horrific. They do, they do uh, great deeds or, or some of the people that were doing some of the rescues that were being interviewed were called heroes. And they don't, they don't see themselves as a hero. They, 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 they understand the elements. They see the danger, yet they, they have learned to harness their fear. They, they learn to use it to their advantage. And I think that's what heroes do. Do you think Benaiah, if you look at the text, we've read it several times. So... When he faced the two aerials of Moab, do you think that he was a little bit afraid? Do you think that he had a moment of fear? Keep in mind, we saw last week that what we have in common with him is he was human just like we are. So therefore, we know that he was subject to the human emotion of fear. Because reality is fear is not a bad thing. When I'm in the kitchen and I'm cutting something to put in the pot, do you don't think I am afraid of what might happen to my finger if I'm careless? Hopefully you didn't drive 150 miles an hour to church this morning, but if you were to drive 150 miles an hour to church, what would your heart do? Why is that? Well, first of all, there's a police officer, but number two, you might die. There's fear. Why wouldn't you jump off the Eiffel Tower? Because fear is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. God made us with this this emotion called caution. But sometimes if we're not careful, we become paralyzed by way too much caution and we allow fear to dominate our emotional state because we we see the aerials, we see the lion, we see the the Egyptian, we see whatever it is that's there and we know that unless we run to the war and challenge that roar and challenge that lion that's in our path that's obstructing us from going on with God, unless we do that, we can't go on with God and, and we're afraid that's why the Bible says that, the, that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whomever he may devour. He roars. Why does a lion roar? I'm king. I'm dominant. You're weak. I can beat the snot out of you if you challenge me. And so fear needs to be harnessed. I think that's what Maniah learned. He learned it with the two aerials from Moab. Don't you think his confidence became stronger? And then he went into the den of a lion, a a hungry, starving, dark dungeon to confront a lion. Now remember, he didn't have any, any AKs. He didn't have any 50 cows. He didn't have any of those kind of equipment. What do you think he had? It was hand to hand combat. How can you say that? He might've had a sword. Okay, but a lion's got those claws. A lion's got those teeth. A lion can jump. A lion can, I mean, they're ferocious. I saw, I wish I could, could show it. It's on YouTube about a, some hunters who were in Africa and they were hunting a lion and they had these high-powered rifles and the lion ran straight for them. And uh, they couldn't hit him because they were too panicked. And he knocked a guy down and swatted him with his hand and still ran off. Lions are fierce. They're ferocious. They're intimidating. And yet we need to understand we need to harness that fear. David understood that in 1 Samuel 17, 37. He's talking to, talking to Saul and Saul was saying to him, hey, how in the world can you go out into the, into the battlefield and face this, this giant? Notice what he says. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the, this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. What's, what's Saul thinking? Well, what's David thinking? 
So then I've, I've learned to harness my fear. When God was out in the, in, in the field when I was tending sheep and he was molding me and shaping me by his activity to become this incredible king that he wants me to be, I have learned to trust God. I mean, I don't know how young he was, but he was on the field tending sheep and a lion came. And, and, he, and notice it says here, deliver me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. Later, I think he said, I grabbed him by the mane. That's close contact. I mean, the bear came to feast on his sheep, and he, he overcame the bear and slaughtered the bear, and, and he learned. Do you think he was afraid of the lion and the bear as a, as, a, as a young kid out watching his dad's sheep in the field by himself? Absolutely. So what, what caused him to think that I can go in and confront this Goliath when all of these great, valiant warriors of Saul and all of their, their accolades and all their conquering and all their achievement wouldn't go down. Why did he think he'd do that? Because he was able to harness his fear and go out in the power and the strength of the Lord and confront the enemy. Notice what the text says for us in Isaiah 41. You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. How do we learn to harness our fear and knowing that the Lord is with us when we run to the roar. Because there's a beautiful passage in 2 Timothy 1, 6, and 7. Give me the next slide. I think it's on there. It should be. Listen to 2 Timothy 1, 6, and 7. Paul writes, for this reason, listen, I remind you, I'm reminding you, fan into flame the gift of God. What is the gift? The Holy Spirit. Fan him into flame, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. They had received the gift of the Holy Spirit upon their conversion. Fan into flame, this incredible gift, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Notice, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When we to harness this, this emotion called fear. If we will seek the empowerment of the person of the Holy Spirit, he can help us harness that fear. And notice what the, what the Spirit does. He gives us self-control. Did you know that, that the last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control? When anybody is not acting in self-control, that's a good sign they're acting in the flesh. Because the Spirit of God is a spirit of self-control. How do you harness the fear that is in you, that is almost natural to us as human beings? We do it through the empowerment, the enablement, and the equipping of the Holy Spirit. And that's what lion chasers do. They harness their fear and they use it under control of the Spirit to help them confront whatever it is that God has placed in their path. Number four, we need to adjust our perspective. Lion chasers adjust their perspective. Notice, interesting in the text, verse 20 again. He also went down and he struck on, down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. On a snowy day, he went into the pit and he chased the lion. What is God's perspective here? Do you think Benaiah really understood God's perspective? I'm not really quite sure that he did completely at this moment, but he knew that the path to becoming and to doing what God had called him to do was in this lion. And what was his perspective, do you think, when he entered into that den and faced this lion? 
Well, he believed that more than likely God was with him, much like David did. But I'm convinced, too, that he also, in this perfective, began to see this obstacle, this opportunity, or this, this opponent. Uh, he began to see it from God's perspective. You see, God was allowing this, or either causing this to happen, so that through this, God can mold him and shape him into the warrior that he needed to become, so that he can become the, the bodyguard of the king, and eventually the commander of the army of Solomon. This was one step into the direction that God had as he was working in him step by step, helping him grow in his faith. David understood that in Psalm 17, 45. Saul, you know the story, he, <laughs> he said, dude, okay, you're going to go into battle with Goliath. Let me give you some of my armor because you can't go in there dressed like that. You're dressed like a shepherd boy. And he dressed David in all this armor. And, and David was young and not as, you know, buffed as maybe Saul was. And so uh, he walking around in that, and it just, it just, it was awkward. It was heavy. He said, I can't, I can't go into the battle with this. I've got to go into battle with what the Lord gave me. And he stripped that off, and what did he do? He went and got five smooth stones. And David said to the Philistine, as he did, Come to me with a sword and with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut, you, cut your head off. Wow. Perspective. You think David had Perspective. He saw the enemy as God saw the enemy, and he put him in perspective. Paul understood that perspective the same as Joseph did. If you remember the story of Joseph, very, very quickly, in a sort of snapshot event, you know what happened to Joseph. He was sold by his brothers as a slave and winds up going to Egypt, interprets a dream, winds up in Potiphar's house, gets thrown under the bus by Potiphar's wife, gets in prison, blah, blah, blah. And then winds up being sort of the number two in command of all of Egypt during a famine with all this incredible bounty. And finding his brothers now before him on his, I guess you can call it a throne, or on his position of authority looking down, these brothers afraid of now facing their brother whom they have sold, asking him to save their lives. And Joseph looked at him and said, he looked at all of them and said, you know what? You intended for evil, God meant for good. How could he say that? He had God's perspective. You see, sometimes we see our lions and our aerials and our Egyptians and our, our, even our family <laughs> as obstacles, as lions. And people around us and circumstances around us, we may judge them as evil. We may see them as destructive and, and harmful to us, but the reality is, while we may see them that way, God uses those things for our development and for our good. And too often what we are praying is, Lord, release me and relieve me from this difficulty, from this lion. But instead we should be praying, Lord, give me strength to encounter the lion. Romans 5, 3, 4 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. How can he say that? We rejoice in our suffering. 
Romans 5 through 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. What is difficulty and danger and, and all of these things? What does this have to do? It develops our character. You grow more by difficulty than you do by ease. Isn't that true? Romans 8.28 said, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I, I don't like that. I don't know about you, but all things? God, I want to determine what things those are. I don't want you to determine what those things are because I don't want to see all things are going to be something that you're going to use in order to, to result in good things in my life. I want to choose and pick. I want, to, I want the easy street. I want the, the less difficult, the less dangerous. I don't want a lion. How about a kitty cat? That would be fine with me. But I've known some kitty cats that bite and that can scratch. We know that all things work together for good for those who God called according to his purpose. All things that happen to us are to fulfill and accomplish God's purpose in our lives. And five and last, lion chasers challenge the odds. They challenge the odds. We've read it many times. I don't need to read it to you again, but I just want to notice the underlying text there. Uh, <laughs> Benaiah, when he came into the first encounter, there were two aerials from Moab, two. These are champions Lion-like men, ferocious, vicious, nasty warriors. Two versus what? One. How would you like those odds? When he went into the pit on a snowy day in the dark to face the lion in the den, what do you think his chances are? What were his odds? You think people thought, well, he's, he's going to come out alive? Or do you think somebody thought, he'll never make it? We've seen the lion. Uh, he went in alone. Nobody went with him. Why is that? Because maybe even with a companion, the odds weren't all that great. They had seen the lion. They'd heard the lion. How about the tall, good-looking Egyptian who had this incredible spear and all he had was a staff? You think in some sort of boxing match or kickboxing match the odds were stacked against Benaiah versus somebody like that absolutely it's not that lion chasers are completely oblivious to the odds and and there are people and I've had this conversation a couple of years ago somebody told me that their responsibility was to knock down the dreamers and the, the visionaries and bring them back down to reality. Because those visionaries and those dreamers, they, they make us jump off the cliff and they don't consider the, the you know, they, 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 we're, we're here to, to ground them. If you have anybody like that, you need to run from them. Really, don't make them your best friend. And don't tell them what what God has communicated to you. And because, you know, they'll say, you can't overcome that lion. You can't defeat that Egyptian. You can't take on those two aerials from Moab. They're too big. Look at the odds. You can't make it. It's, it's, not, it's, not, a, it's not likely you're going to survive. You're not I think Benaiah knew that the two aerials, he was outgunned and outmanned. Don't you? I mean, he could see it. He's not stupid. I think going into the den and facing the lion, he knew what he was facing. 
He could hear the roar. He could see the teeth in the twinkling of the skylight bursting through the den. And when he faced the Egyptian, you don't think he saw that spear and that he was looking up to this guy? I'm going, oh my soul, what have I got myself into today? He knew what the odds were. And he calculated those odds, but yet he knew his God. Because you and I, independently apart from God, do not stand a chance. David knew the same thing. I mean, if you take a look at in 1 Samuel 17, 40 and 43, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now, if you can imagine, he went to the brook, he got five stones and put them in his pouch and took his slingshot and he stepped out from their, their face in Israel, okay? Philistines, he comes down and challenges. David steps out and he walks all the way down. Do you think as he was making his way down to that valley, he didn't see that giant grow the closer he got? I mean, from a distance, he was like this, and the closer he got, he started growing. I mean, this dude's nine feet, nine inches long, tall, and he's looking up like that. Can you imagine? Soldiers, warriors, Israel, as he was walking down, they were saying, I give him 100 to 1 odds he won't make it. Nobody thought he would make it back. I mean, if you were there, would you think he was going to make it back? Seriously, be honest. No way. This little little fellow's nuts. He's not going to overcome this Goliath. I'm not going down there. What's he doing going down there? And all he's got is five smooth stones and a slingshot. He's crazy. This guy is dressed to the hilt. The odds are stacked against him. Don't you think David knew those odds when he went down there? Goliath knew the odds. It says in verse 43, 1 Samuel 17, And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He said, this is going to be easy, man. You're going to be toast here in just a minute. I'm going to squash you like a bug. You're a gnat on my face. That's it. His overconfidence got him in trouble, didn't it? 1 John 4, 4 said, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Another passage, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have have divine power to destroy strongholds. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. The enemy may have a stronghold in your life, but you have divine power that gives you advantage over the odds. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? A group of interfaith religious leaders were getting a tour of the zoo in in Jerusalem. And uh, the guide showed them a cage where there was a lion and lion next to the lion you say that real careful lying next to the lion was a lamb 
lying next to the lamb, never mind, lying next to the lion was a lamb. Try that when you're having lunch in a little bit. Say it 10 times real fast so you don't mess it up. So the head of the delegation was amazed. He said, for 2,000 years we prayed for signs of the Messianic era and the prophecy that the lion will lie down next to the lamb. How did you do it? He waited for a minute and he said, well, it's easy. All it needs is a new lamb a day. You see, the lion may see us as lambs. And the odds may seem to him stacked against us. But with our God, all things are possible. I'm not sure what you're facing in the form of a lion or a, or a Goliath or an Ariel or an Egyptian. But I know God. And I know how great God is. And I know how faithful he is. And there's nothing that he allows you to face that is invincible with him. Period. Let's pray.